On this episode of the Nonprofit Ready Podcast, I'm pleased to be joined by John Cabara, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer at California Community Foundation. We really see grant making as one of many things we do. It's at the core of what we do, but if we're really interested in change, which we all are, if we're really interested in making a difference, which everybody says they are, and we certainly do, then you want to make grant making as one component, key component, but it's never sufficient. Welcome to the Nonprofit Ready Podcast, conversations with accomplished professionals from across the nonprofit sector about what they do, why they do it, and how they make change happen. I'm your host, Justin Waddell from nonprofitready.org and the Cornerstone On Demand Foundation. And today I'm pleased to be joined by John Cabara, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer at California Community Foundation, one of the largest philanthropy organizations in Los Angeles, with more than 1,600 funds and stewards of more than $1.4 billion. John is a well-respected figure nationally in the philanthropic and nonprofit communities and began his work at CCF in 2008, leading the External and Donor Relations Department. John, thanks for being with us today. Nice to be here, Justin. Thanks. Yeah, this is an absolute pleasure, and I must say to all our listeners, we are very lucky to have you here with us today. Uh, I have seen you speak before. You are fantastic. I have read Swivel Time. I love it. (laughs) Shameless pitch for Swivel Time, everyone. Um, but I want to help viewers or listeners who haven't yet heard about you get to know you a little bit better. So could we start by telling people a little bit about your background and specifically about the California Community Foundation? Yeah, I've been involved in nonprofit service work since I was in college and really got started by my parents who really, really made it a point to make community service and service to the community an important part of my life. So I've been really doing that for many, many years. Uh, the California Community Foundation was established in 1915, 100 years old. It's one of the oldest foundations in the United States. Its focus, despite its name, is Los Angeles County, and it has two jobs. One is to help um, wealthy individuals and families establish their philanthropic vehicles, their foundations, their funds. We manage about 1,600 of those today, as you said, and help them give that money away. And because we're so old, people have left money to us. We have about $900 million in assets that have been left to us. And those monies, primarily the assets, are dedicated towards the needs of the vulnerable and the poor here in Los Angeles County. So we're one of the largest funders of affordable housing, of individual artists in the emerging communities, of uh, veteran services, of health care and clinics. Um, the, we're the largest scholarship provider in Los Angeles County, et cetera, et cetera. So we have these two businesses helping individuals and then really working on the needs of L.A. County. Hmm, interesting. And for those who may be new uh, to development and to foundations versus community foundations, could you enlighten some of those listeners on the difference? Yeah, there's a lot of different kinds of foundations. L.A. County has 3,000 foundations, primarily family foundations and private foundations. What's really interesting about community foundation, there's only 800 of them in the United States. Every major city or state community has one about 900 to 1,000 of them outside of the United States today. But the community foundations are place-based, so we're L.A. County-based. And what's interesting about a community foundation that's different than a private foundation is we're a fundraising foundation. So we bring assets in. Uh, last 10 years, we've brought in just under $2 billion. So we're bringing assets in, just like it would be a financial institution that are invested to be used for philanthropy. We convert those assets into philanthropy, help those donors, as I said earlier, and those families give that money away. So we're a fundraising foundation. So a private foundation is obligated to give about 5% of their assets a year away. Otherwise, they'll get fined. So a Gates Foundation gives 5.1% of its assets. 
we give whatever the donors want to give away. So we average every year of the last 10 years, 17% of our assets. So every six years, we give 100% of our assets away. So we're a philanthropic machine. We're not um, sitting on a pile of money and just spending a little bit of it. We're, there's a flow of money coming out. So while we brought in $2 billion, we spent $1.7 And during those same 10 years, our assets tripled. So we're a growing entity as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned that some private foundations definitely do focus where they want to spend their resources. How do you prioritize which needs of the community are most deserving of funds from CCF? So each of the funds that we have that we have discretion over, about a 1,000 funds, have embedded in them, in legal terms, donor intentions, legacy instructions, right? So people have left us money and they said, help the birds, help kids play soccer, um, make education better, help orphans. We have funds from the 20s that say orphans, and we've interpreted that to be foster youth because that's the modern orphan today. So the instructions and the intentions of donors, which is the kind of currency of our world and how we develop trust and reputation, is we have to make good on the interpretation. We have very few gifts that have been given to us. We have some that say, do everything you want, (laughs) help Mm -hmm. L.A., so each of the funds are part of a molecular structure of intentions that we have to abide by. So it's not just about money. We decide one day, hey, this is an important need. We have to align the funds and their intentions as a part of that process. So we have staffs to do that. And every day a new fund comes in, we align those funds with our giving so that we stay in close connection to the original intentions of the donor. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the other side of the table, the nonprofits, the beneficiaries. How do they find themselves to you and to these donors? We have this process that we, a number of not, uh, foundations have to kind of demystify the grant-making process because a lot of foundations, it's sort of a black box to say, you know, how do I get the money and how do I get competitive? So we have this thing called the LOI, which is a letter of intent. We encourage nonprofits to call us and say, hi, I run this nonprofit and we do this. What do I do? Where, what door do I go in? And then we ask them to fill out a letter of intent. It's a very light application. It's just the basic concepts. And then we will give them kind of a review of that letter of intent. Because we'll say, you know what? You're not a fit for us. You shouldn't be here. You should be somewhere else. Or you're really a good fit, but you need to enhance these parts and fully apply. So we try to get them this one moment so that they don't waste their time filling out a big application and you know waiting and hoping that they're going to get win the lottery ticket. Once they get into the application, it's a very high probability they're going to get a grant from us. So there is this vetting process that we want to do in due diligence. We have an obligation by the IRS and by our own board of directors that we choose nonprofits that are, that are structurally sound, that are going concerns. They don't have to be large, but they have um, a number of attributes that make them sustainable and therefore our investments will be sound investments. Mm-hmm. And when we were talking before the podcast, you'd mentioned a focus on sustainability by CCF. Can you walk me through what that means for a nonprofit? Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, you know, there's currently 32,000 nonprofits in LA County. Um, 75, 000, 75% of those have budgets under $100,000. So these are relatively small organizations with small staffs. Sustainability, and a lot of words out there, building capacity, sustainability, basically is, do you have sort of the working parts of an organization that's going to be able to endure uh, financially endure, you know, some downturns, some struggles, some challenges. Um, part of it is the diversity of your income. You know, do you have just one fundraiser a year uh, or do you have multiple sources? Do you have individual donors and grants and government support 
what is your mix of income that you have? Because mm-hmm. you, if you just depend on one source, you're at risk, right? Is there a golden ratio? The, uh, increasing your individual donors. Um, there is a, some people talk about 80% individual donors, but it really depends on the type of nonprofit. But if you just have a very few uh, number of individual donors, you're at risk because the greatest source of giving and support for nonprofits is going to be individuals. It's not going to be the government. It's not going to be corporations. And it's certainly not going to be foundations. There's not enough of them. So you have to build your individual giving is really a, a challenge for a lot of nonprofits. You have to have a very good board. What does a good board mean? It means it's a diverse board in, in terms of functions and responsibilities, but they're engaged. And this diverse board has to be giving and getting. They can't just be consulting on the programs. They have to be financially part of the organization. So there's we don't have a hard and fast rule on give or get policies, but we really encourage that boards fully participate, meaning they're personally giving and they're getting money for the nonprofits because, again, something we talked about before the podcast, the business model of a nonprofit is raising money. And if it doesn't raise money, it can't sustain itself and it can't grow. Uh, outside of that, you have, we like to see where organizations have a very clear mission and focus. There's this thing called mission drift where, you know, we want to help children. So anything that helps children is what we're going to do. And then we get caught up in things that are really challenging and difficult and outside of our expertise. So how to get remain focused as part of your work um, and then lastly is, you know, sort of there's some financial components working towards having a little bit of a, of a piggy bank, a reserve, a little bit of money on the side. We're not saying an endowment, but a little bit of a reserve because there's rainy days, there's challenges, there's the seasonality of giving. And once you get through this quarter, the fourth quarter of a calendar year, which is where 50% of giving is done, you come into a dry period. And do you have some money to kind of get you through that dry period? So we look for little reserves. We're not asking for big reserves, but we're looking for at least the effort to get to a reserve policy because part of sustainability and endurance is going to have that money tucked away. Mm. Now, you mentioned evaluating that board and evaluating board diversity, whether or not they give that give or get. When you look for a diverse and effective board, what are you looking for? What are those components or variables that every nonprofit should be checking the box on? Yeah. So there's functional diversity. I mean, it's always nice to see that you know, if everybody has a is a social worker, that's great, but it doesn't give you, you – you need a lawyer. You need financial people. You need marketing people. You need functional diversity. You need some geographic diversity. You might need some representation. If you're really serving a large part of L.A., you might need some geographic diversity as a part of that. If your beneficiaries are of a particular ethnicity or a particular demographic or psychographic, you might want to have some people that know understand that population. So we look for a variety of things. There's no rule like there's been boards that, that I've seen that are 55 people, and obviously that's a very challenging number. We don't say that's bad, but that's that's difficult to deal with. And if you have a board of three people, it doesn't seem like enough people to really help you advance the work. Executive director's job is one of the loneliest jobs in the world because there's nobody to talk to except the board. And if you don't have a board that's a mentoring board, a helpful board, a supportive board, then the executive director is stuck with just directing the staff or trying to you know, rearrange the deck chairs. So a board serves more than just financial support. There are moral and sort of technical support for the leadership of the organization. So we look for all those things. We don't look for it to be perfect. We look for the elements and the theories and sort of the framework to make that happen. Mm. 
And do you take that same approach to evaluating a nonprofit staff and personnel? We do. Um, we we look less at the. Uh, we don't look as hard at the staff per se. We want to mm -hmm. see that there's some functional capability to the organization. Again, the organizations vary in size. If you have a health clinic, or uh, if you're working with a, a small neighborhood nonprofit, people have titles and responsibilities that vary. And um, it'd be nice to have people that you know. Uh, there's somebody that has the title finance something, control or something. It means that there's somebody watching for the checks and balance there. But we look for just some general diversity of that function so that they can do the work they need to do. Mm -hmm. Now, is CCF your very first foundation gig? No, I had, well, I had a job with another foundation. It was a uh, foundation up in Northern California that um, was the focus on the creation of virtual textbooks for free for the K-12 market. So I worked for them as a CEO of that organization. But this is really the, really the truly philanthropic organization mm -hmm. that's giving away money, yes. Mm -hmm. How has your perspective on effective grant-making evolved over time? You've been in this role for a number of years now. Well, it's one of the things is a lot of people and the wealthy people I get a chance to meet and have the privilege of serving um, come to me, and they will lower their voice and they'll say, giving away money, man, that's a pretty good job. Wow, and they pay you to do that. How hard can that be, John, really? And then when they get involved with giving away money, it's very difficult. Um, it's, it sounds easy to do. You have to identify, but you want to, if you want to have impact, if you want to align it with what you care about, giving away money is easy. You can just write checks. So my, the grant making is, we really see grant making as one of many things we do. It's at the core of what we do. But if we're really interested in change, which we all are, if we're really interested in making a difference, which everybody says they are, and we certainly do, then you want to make grant making as one component, key component, but it's never sufficient, the amount of money that we have. So how do we leverage that dollars to make grant to attract more dollars from other funders and other donors? How do we leverage our communication strategy? How do we do, we actually do a lot of lending now. So in addition to grant making, we're the largest lender, nonprofit lender in LA County. So we'll lend dollars to a nonprofit. So how do we use our portfolio of tools and resources? How do we use our social networks, our reputation, how do we become an advocate and do public policy changes? So when we start looking at the portfolio of tools that we have, grant making is one important part of that. But we want to surround it with other tools to advance an agenda. Um, and not every foundation can do that. We just happen to be of the size and um, of the sophistication to start thinking in that way. And so my view of grant making has evolved to be a part of something larger than just being the end all and be all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's something that always really intrigues me. Uh, to your earlier point, I think one of the most difficult things in philanthropy is, you know, people think it's as easy as just giving money. And really to do it effectively, you have to hold yourself accountable to seeing those metrics through and making sure you're driving impact. Do you feel like there is a sea change in the mindset of your donors wanting to make sure those metrics are in place and following that secondary impact of their funds? There is, and the other side of that metrics part and measuring and making sure that we have impact is also this dance that has to be done, which is allowing the nonprofit to do the magic that they do. Even though we're giving them a grant for $100,000, which for some nonprofits will be life-changing, others won't even be a blip on their financial radar, how do we also allow flexibility and latitude to the nonprofits to get their job done? So the vast majority of the grants we make while we will put them into an area and focus them on a particular target, 
are what we call general operating funds. General operating funds are, look, we want you to advance this agenda, but you can use this money to pay the staff, to get dental benefits, to you know add program expenses. We're not going to dictate where that money goes, pour it into the organization where it's needed most. We don't want to know how you used it. Just do that part of it yourself and tell us how you're advancing the agenda. So the notion of general operating is counter to some people that say, wait a minute, I want my money only to be used for this. And you hamstring the nonprofit who's trying to juggle many different things and now has to account for this little pot of money, or maybe a big pot of money, and say, we only use this money for this program and those people, and we didn't use this money for that, which for most nonprofits is impossible. So now you've put them in a situation where they're going to have to either do work that's taken away from their service or they're going to have to kind of fudge a little bit. And either one of those things is not good. Mm -hmm. So it's this dance between measurability and flexibility. Mm -hmm. You're speaking my language on that one. Has CCF always been of the mind that you should give to general operating funds? Yeah, we um, we like to say we were one of the first. Um, I'm not sure we were one of the first, but we've been doing it. Um, this is our second 10-year plan. We do 10-year plans because we also believe that foundations should be changing their mind all the time and saying, hey, we just had a board meeting and we're not doing that program anymore. We're doing this. We want to stick to our, our work. And part of that is general operating. So this is our second 10-year plan where we've been focused on general operating and focused on the exact same issues. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Now, what ultimately brought you to this work? Now, you're obviously part of a very innovative organization. I, I love your approach to philanthropy. How'd you wind up here? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so I was um, I was completing a startup in online education. I just merged it into a, an online college, and I was called to be on the board of this foundation. So I was recruited by a couple friends who are connected through graduate programs and things. And um, I joined the board in 2002. And I joined with a woman named Antonia Hernandez, who I had known from UCLA. And Antonia and I joined the board. And and uh, in 2004, she was appointed CEO. And I was still on the board, and I went through some career changes. And in 2008, uh, while I was on the board, she said, hey, I want your help. And she said, I want you to join the staff. I, she wouldn't give me a title. Uh, she just said, I need your help. And if you know Antonio Hernandez, who's an icon in some circles, uh, you never decline Antonio Hernandez under any circumstances. So I, of course, said yes. I disconnected myself from this previous foundation I was working with up north. And I came to work in 2008, and I've been here as my eighth year on staff. Congratulations. Thanks. Top. <laughs> now, I know from your resume, you've also worked in direct service with nonprofits yeah. on the ground. Why that transition? And more importantly, what differences do you see in your work or feel in your work when you're working for a foundation versus working directly for a nonprofit? Yeah, huge differences. I mean, I have also, you know, I worked in a university and taught at a university and there is a, uh, a real danger in being an ivory tower in a foundation because you, we're sitting in very nice offices today and we're removed from the, the street level and we don't have a lobby where people are waiting for services, which is a typical nonprofit if there are direct services there. So you are in this sort of safe zone away from reality. Um, and that's, that's the biggest difference. What we, we get to do because we're a community foundation, we're focused on a particular geographic area. We get to move and go into that community and work in the community. So we get a little bit of that reality. But when you're in direct service and you're working with families or individuals or people that are suffering in some way and the contact you have with them on a day to day basis is a reminder of what you're doing. 
Here you have to force yourself to be reminded because your brain can go into neural pathways and get into habits and ideas and thoughts that really separate you from the realities of the humanity of your work. And I think a lot of non, non uh, foundations, I should say, that don't have the connection to community start to talk about nameless, faceless things, about poverty and homelessness. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't. No people are involved in these things that we talk about. It's like it's like when you get to the you know, the high elevation of some of these corporate towers, and we're talking about marketing to customers. It's the same thing. We're not talking about real people anymore. And it doesn't mean they don't care. It's just that you you do care less. You have you can't get connected to your own compassion and empathy when you don't see the people. So huge difference from where I had a waiting room in my last world when I was a nonprofit um, running Big Brothers Big Sisters here in Los Angeles, mentoring organization for at-risk youth, where moms, we had a childcare area where moms would drop off their kids and then we would be matching the kids and introducing the mentors and talking to those kids and the moms and their hopes and aspirations is a dramatic difference than what it is day-to-day -day here in the foundation. Mm -hmm. What steps do you take to make sure that you and your staff are accountable to those realities on the ground? Yeah, we're, again, because we're a community foundation and a little bit different, uh, we, we do these, we, our grantees are not just sort of the recipients of the mm -hmm. check, right? They're our partners. And so we convene them, we work with them, we go out in the community and talk to them. We try not to get in their way, but we're highly engaged partners in the work in the community. And so, and we try to take the opportunities to, to visit, to see, to understand so that our work isn't so abstract from and sort of a theory of what's going on. It's really a reminder and re-energizes us about the realities of, that these nonprofits are facing just to struggle as nonprofits. But then even more importantly, the, the beneficiaries and the people and the families they're serving who have serious challenges day to day be reminded of that as, as often as we can. Mm -hmm. Now, when you get applications that are coming through, I want to go back to just your general vetting process for uh, different nonprofits. Is there something in an application where when you're reading it, you smile and you say, yes, this is an organization that we need to be supporting? Well, I, you know, it's there, there is something to writing a good application. It's like a resume. You know, it's like, you see a resume or a cover letter where someone took some time to say they're telling you a story. The narrative is now resonating with you. Um, people just don't, dear, dear sir and madam, uh, attached to my qualifications, and I'm looking forward to talk to you about you. Know. So you see where people put effort in. There's Just like in everything, um, grant seeking is a video game. You know, it's like applying for jobs. Hey, I'm just applying for grants. I don't even know what grants are. I don't even know what foundation is. It's California something. And they, they have money. And I'm just going to see if I get lucky. And, of course, those don't work out very well. Mm -hmm. So people that take the time and effort and spend a little bit of time and talk to us, which we encourage people to do because some foundations don't, um, get an advantage because they start to weave their story and start to tell the story that is, at least at the beginning, aligns with what, we're doing and we get we get we say yes that's interesting that's something we should look at they're, they're close to what we need to do because they've been paying attention we'll find out if they just made up this whole story mm -hmm. just to get in the door because the site visit and the, and the review of their financials and everything else will reveal it but that that little extra effort of uh, crafting a, a narrative and one of the weaknesses in the nonprofit community is we don't know how to tell our story it's not just the elevator pitch it's just about making sure that we're connecting. It's not just the actions we're taking. You know, I am matching at-risk youth with, you know, 
terrific mentors. No, we're actually is changing the trajectory. 99% of the girls that were in our mentoring program did not get pregnant 10 years after our program. That has a dramatic financial and economic impact on the lives of those girls. So we have to understand the story that tells the story of where it's leading, not just what we're, we're busy, we're busy, we're all busy doing mm-hmm. things, really good things, nice things. But what do those nice things accumulate to? And ultimately, what is our theory of change and the impact in the community? And we're not really good at telling that story. So we, if the people that are able to tell the story a little bit better, they have a leg up. Hmm. I want to talk about reapplicants really quick. Sometimes I hear in the sector, uh, you know, apply year one, you're going to get rejected outright. That's just how it works. Then you'll mm-hmm. apply in future years and gradually you'll get to know the foundation better, build that relationship. Eventually, maybe you'll get the grant. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And what do you see from successful reapplicants who maybe didn't have the best LOI at the beginning? How did they change? Yeah, well, again, um, if you're new to grant making or grant seeking um, and you don't know what you're doing and you're going to make some mistakes and... Um, foundations like ours are going to try to coach you through that. You know, it's not a winner's losers thing. It's just not enough money. We, we have to make choices, hard choices, difficult choices between very qualified uh, applicants. So it's not just, my, well, there's a bunch of really um, unqualified applicants. It's usually the case there's a lot of qualified applicants, and we have to now go into very refined, nuanced decision-making process. And what we say to those other um, grantees or prospective guarantees that didn't get the money this time, we ask them to reapply. We say reapply. And we, we give them some tips about that reapplication. If you're a brand new organization, you just started last year and you know you founded yourself, you're not going to get a grant from us. We're just not if you don't have some track record, that's a challenge for new that's not our cup of tea. There's some foundations that love startups and they will focus on that. That's not what CCF does. Hmm. A couple more questions. Um, I'm always fascinated by those who have played in both the corporate sector and the nonprofit sector. Where do you see the lessons from your time in the corporate sector being most pronounced in your work today? Um, I, you know, I worked in a you know publicly traded company. I worked for three startups. Um, I've worked for you know a major university and and nonprofits, small and medium and large. Um, you know, there my need personally is to be aligned with the mission of the organization. And so once I'm aligned with the organization's mission and the culture, then, you know, all the work, there's a lot of similarities to the work. As I mentioned earlier, the business model is the biggest difference. Um, I mentioned to some for-profit colleagues of mine that, you know, when I got upstairs to some corporate um, suites and our whole conversation was about EBITDA, you know what EBITDA is? I do. Okay. But not everybody knows what EBITDA is. And EBITDA, you know, is, you know, the, the profit margin of, a, of a, the widgets and the services that we were selling. And EBITDA is, is a simplistic and easy thing to understand. This is how much money we have to make and this is what we have to do. So I used to say to my for-profit colleagues, which they were very upset with me when I said this, but I said, I, I want to go to for-profit to rest because it's easy to figure out EBITDA. It's easy to figure out the profit margin of the company. It's very difficult to say, I want to now serve a thousand more students or a thousand more kids and I got to go raise a million dollars I don't have right now and I got to go find it. And that's a strange business model to scale and build your operation. And, um, I have, uh, you know, kind of a semi-famous IQ test that I've given corporate executives who want to run nonprofits. It's a two-question IQ test. And I said, if you pass both both questions, 
you can run a nonprofit. If you fail one of them, you have to raise your hand and promise me you will never run a nonprofit. I've done this for hundreds and hundreds of people. Anyway, first question is, do you know how your computer works? And they say, well, why? Because there's no IT department at the nonprofit. They go, oh, yeah, I know how my computer works. What else you got? Okay, second question, last question. And if you answer this question positively, you can run a nonprofit. Do you like asking your friends and family for money over and over and over and over and over again? They go, no, I would never do that. I'll hire a director of development. I would never do that. I said, well, then you cannot run a nonprofit because you're responsible in the business model for raising that money. So that's the... Um, the biggest difference. And then I would say the the quality of the people you work with, if you're all here, we're not all not getting a bonus. We're all not in here for stock options. We're all being motivated by something different. Then there's a different kind of a culture and it doesn't mean it's bad or good. It's just different because the currency of a, a, a nonprofit that works well, that has a really vibrant culture is where everybody is kind of all in to make something happen. If you have the right team in the right place, it's different. And finally, what's the one piece of advice before we let you go the rest of your busy day that you would offer to any nonprofits who are looking to approach a foundation community otherwise? Well, I think like everything, um, and I use the analogy to job applicants, I think the first thing that always is helpful um, before you uh, engage the foundation in a conversation is is really about the self-reflection that is required to put together your pitch, your application, your case statement for your work. Um, it isn't just something that a development assistant fills out on the fly between their activities. It is part of this narrative that we talked about earlier that's part of the story about why this nonprofit is important and needs the investment and will do well with that investment. And that requires um, a, a self-reflection, a moment to uh, capture that those thoughts and ideas before you just start filling out the form. And then picking up the phone and engaging people, maybe it's not even the foundation directly because some foundations don't like it, but other people that have applied other people that know the foundation, doing a little bit of due diligence about the foundation and doing some homework before you, again, push the submit button. And for anyone who wants to learn more about CCF, where should they go? Uh, Calfund, C-A-L-F-U-N-D dot org. Perfect. Thanks so much, sir. My pleasure. Thank it. you. On the next episode of the Nonprofit Ready Podcast, I'll be joined by Brad Riley, founder and president of I Empathize, who will speak about how his organization is working to eradicate child exploitation here in the U.S. and around the world. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And while you're there, we would love it if you would leave us an honest rating and review. Finally, be sure to sign up for nonprofitready.org, our open online learning portal for nonprofit professionals, which includes more than 300 online learning resources covering the most crucial job functions in the nonprofit sector, all 100% free. The Nonprofit Ready Podcast is a production of the Cornerstone On Demand Foundation. Thanks to our executive producer, Alec Green, our editorial director, Jeanette Lamb, our sound producer, Trung Ngo, and most importantly, you, for helping us to build the Nonprofit Ready community. Learn more about all of the capacity-building services of the Cornerstone On Demand Foundation at csodfoundation.org. Thanks again, and have a great day.